Welcome to EmergencyMedicineCases.com. I'm your host, Dr. Anton Hellman, bringing you Canada's brightest minds in emergency medicine from EMC Studios in Toronto. On this episode number eight, Airway Controversies, we have with us Dr. Jonathan Sherbino. The hard cutoff of a GCS of eight is as useful as you find ATLS to be. He's an assistant professor at McMaster University, where he is the Director of Continuing Professional Development for the Division of Emergency Medicine. We also have with us Dr. Andrew Healy. I also don't think that a dogmatic approach where you use rules would really help the experienced clinician in making that decision. He's an emergency physician at St. Joseph's Hamilton and an assistant clinical professor of medicine at McMaster University. He is co-founder of the Evidence-Based Resuscitation and Focused ED Sonography courses. We also have with us Dr. Mansur. The literature is certainly becoming more controversial when you look at intubation. He practices emergency medicine and anesthesiology at Huntsville District Memorial Hospital and South Muskoka Memorial Hospital. He's an assistant professor of emergency medicine for the Northern Ontario School of Medicine, having lectured nationally and internationally on topics in emergency medicine and anesthesiology. He is co-founder of evidence-based resuscitation and focused ED sonography courses. Well, they don't call it the ABCs for nothing. Managing the airway is perhaps the defining skill of the emergency physician. Without an airway, you ain't got nothing. Over the past 20 years, there's been a huge shift in the way emergency physicians manage the airway, and we're lucky now to have a huge amount of research on emergency airway management to guide us. If you've practiced emergency medicine for more than a few years, I'm sure you can recall a case where you've had trouble intubating a patient. Remember that feeling? Yes, that feeling of doom when you're faced with a can't-intubate, can't-oxygenate situation. Your pupils are the size of golf balls. Your heart rate doubles and you pray that the next move you make is going to work. In this episode, we'll feed your brain with the knowledge you need to have readily available the next time you are faced with a difficult airway. We're going to present a few challenging cases to Dr. Sherbino, Dr. Healy, and Dr. Mansur, who will guide us through an organized approach to each case. We'll look at the evidence for certain treatments and discuss the oh-so-many controversies. Probably the best way to master the emergency airway is after listening to this episode a couple times to take your knowledge and then practice your skills. Try out a few alternative airway devices in a simulated environment and then ask one of your anesthetists if you can join them for a couple of mornings and try some airway devices on real patients in the OR. If you haven't taken an airway course in the last five years or so, I highly recommend that you take one soon. The Canadian Association of Emergency Physicians runs an excellent airway course in various cities across the country And in the States, the difficult airway course is also a very good one. I have no affiliations with either of these courses. So let's jump into the first case. Paramedics were called to the home of a 40-year-old male found lying on the floor unresponsive. He was last seen by his sister two hours prior in his usual healthy condition. At the scene, the patient's blood pressure was 125 over 80, his pulse was 108, and his respirations were 11 and shallow. His GCS was 5. Pupils were constricted and non-reactive. His skin was cool and cyanotic. Glucose level was 3, the lower limit of normal being 4 in Canada for those non-Canadian listeners. O2 by non-rebreather was applied, and the patient received glucagon and 1 milligram of naloxone IV by the paramedics. On arrival in your resuscitation room, He's unresponsive with a GCS of 7. 
His vitals were essentially unchanged, and his O2 sat 90% on a non-rebreather. His respirations were shallow, with brief periods of apnea. Air entry was equal bilaterally. His pupils were constricted and unreactive. There were no signs of head injury. There were track marks found in the antecubital fossa, and his glucose level was 5 in the normal range. So, Dr. Sherbino, at this point, how would you approach the patient and his airway? Thanks, Dr. Hellman. Uh, so, obviously, you need this person in the right place with the right people with a team approach so that you can achieve a couple of points quickly. So, in your resuscitation or critical care area, ensuring that you have appropriate nursing assistance and uh, respiratory therapy assistance if it's appropriate for your setting in your hospital. So you need more than just yourself, and you need yourself in an environment where have access to intravenous cannulation, um, advanced airway equipped, and then also ongoing cardiorespiratory monitoring. Obviously, he has a sedative hypnotic, maybe a narcotic toxidrome, and I would approach it that way. Once IV was established, I'd give him a fluid bolus of 500 to uh, one liter of normal saline. And I would prepare to give him more of naloxone, but I have a couple caveats on how I do that. And this is going to sound a little unusual to people listening, perhaps, but my experience is with people, if they are chronic abusers of narcotics, that it can be helpful to actually restrain these patients before you administer a narcotic. Oh, yeah, I almost broke my wrist once in that exact situation where I gave naloxone and the patient grabbed my wrist and almost broke it. So my, my general so I do, I do the exact same is, thing. It's not ABC, but it's restraint ABC. And if you're listening to this and you haven't put it in the right context, you're going to say, wow, um, I'm practicing a kind of medicine that uh, is obviously a little unusual. But my idea is certainly you're doing things simultaneously. So you're putting the patient to four-point restraints and simultaneously helping to assist their ventilations and timed with their inhalation exhalation using a bag bottle mask. Once you have them restrained, I usually give them a bit of gentle uh, mechanical ventilation through the bag valve mask to ensure that they're not in any laryngospasm, and then I would give them more naloxone. In some narcotic overdose situations, codeine being the most classic, you may need up to 10 milligrams of naloxone in order to reverse the effect of the drug. And so I will give high doses if I think it's appropriate based on the toxidrome. But one milligram with a bit of a response probably warrants further drug to see how they respond. And the pearl about the bag valve mass ventilation is that if you don't ensure that they're not in any laryngospasm, you can induce kind of a negative pressure um, pulmonary edema. So they inspire against the closed glottis and they subsequently lead to physiologic change and uh, problems with basically what looks like an ARDS type picture. So if you find they're in a laryngospasm, what's your next step? I find just a, usually a couple breaths through the BVM is enough to break that laryngospasm. Right. Okay, and if that fails, use uh, succinylcholine? So again, it, you, you have to paint the picture for me, but if I have a patient who is in true laryngospasm, so they don't have gas exchange, so they're not um, oxygenating at that point, and they obviously aren't ventilating, so then I would move directly from um, my attempt to assist with what we described already and move right to a rapid sequence intubation algorithm. Okay. Let's just review for the listeners in terms of the oxygen delivery. 
when you have nasal prongs versus a plain mask versus a non-rebreather versus bag valve mask. Dr. Menser, could you just review for us how much oxygen delivery you're actually getting? So not thinking specifically about this case, as you start out with nasal prongs at three liters and then move up from there, there are some rules out there that talk about 3% per liter of increased volume uh, being given. However, in this particular case, we're going to go right to what we believe is the maximum amount of oxygen concentration that we can give because the patient presents on oxygen with decreased saturations at 90. There's obviously different ways to provide that oxygen. So nasal prongs allows for entrainment of ambient air, which is at 21% O2. So the mixture cuts down the total percentage. Uh, as you move up to a simple mask and then a non-rebreather mask, the concentrations increase. But we're getting up to 65 to 80%. Maybe with non-rebreather, it's not 100% O2. So I think that taking that in consideration, the next step beyond non-rebreather is then a better seal, essentially, which comes from bag valve mass ventilation, perhaps in different clinical settings, non-invasive ventilation, and then ultimately a closed circuit with an endotracheal tube. Dr. Menser, I think that's a good point, right? That we assume, and particularly um, more junior practitioners, so people in training, would assume that if I put on the non-rebreather, that I'm getting 100% or an FiO2 of 1, and that's the fallacy, that you still have that entrainment, and that there is sequences that you can go. And the same, uh, the flip side, I guess, of that argument is, I'm going to put a nasal cannula on, and I'm going to turn you to a flow rate of 15 liters per minute, which is kind of like sticking your head out the car door. With lots of volume, but probably not much change in terms of what's happening in terms of the actual oxygen delivery at the level of the alveoli. So I think I, think I would emphasize and agree with kind of that idea of that gradation. So I'm going to be the devil's advocate. This guy's respirator is 11, right? Mm -hmm. And he's got low tidal volume, and he's got a non-rebreather on, and you've got 15 liters per minute. If you're under 15 liters per minute, and this guy's not huffing and puffing, your oxygen <clears throat> delivery is probably pretty close to 90 to 100% with a non-rebreather, as long as you believe this guy's not got alveolar hypoventilation. I'm not saying he doesn't. I'm just saying that in a patient with a respirator of 11 who's got a depressed level of consciousness and low tidal volumes, I don't know that actually, I'm not saying adding a bag uh, valve mask might increase your O2 by 5 or 10%, but I think in general, without positive pressure, you're probably not increasing your FiO2 by much in somebody who's hypoventilating. If you're talking about somebody in CHF who's got a respirator of 40 with big tidal volumes, that's different. In this patient, he's having intermittent periods of apnea. Mm -hmm. Would that change your opinion in terms of his oxygenation, and would that make you more likely to use bag valve masks? Absolutely. Yeah. So Absolutely. there's a couple of options there, right? Yeah. If you've uh, got the patient prepped in a way that you're ready to give the next dose of Narcan or Naloxone, then that may change the patient's level of alveolar ventilation, as in when he wakes up, he yeah. goes... <gasps> and automatically he's taking in more O2. So you can take that approach as in, I'm gonna try and wake the patient up before I go ahead and bag him. Because bag valve mass ventilation does have some complications to it. And by doing that on somebody who's not currently protecting their airway, there are some things that can happen that might change the effects for the patient in terms of gastric dilatation or distension and then subsequent aspiration. Uh, in someone who has a depressed level of consciousness, 
it's, it's a consideration, right? So how you do it in terms of your sequence of events in this particular patient, I, I think can take different pathways. Sure. Dr. Menzer, I agree with everything you said. The point I just come back and emphasize is, is that too often bag valve mass ventilation is at a rate of one a second, so 60 a minute. If you actually did measure the, the airway pressure, it'd be way over the ability to uh, appropriately protect against opening the lower esophageal sphincter, passive regurgitation, stomach content. So bag valve mass done poorly is a bad thing. But I would certainly want to emphasize that before you give that first dose of Narcan, probably one, maybe two gentle assisted ventilations to ensure they're not in uh, laryngospasm is essential because that that negative pressure pulmonary edema um, can be a, a significant issue. Can you guys give us some tips about the your techniques of good bag max ventilation? I've often seen docs have problems with getting a good seal and everyone's scrambling around and meanwhile the patient's deciding and they're trying to prepare for intubation but you can't get a good seal. What, what are some of the tips you can give us about getting good technique? Because if you have good technique with the BVM, then really that can, that can give you a lot of time before you need to intubate. Whereas if you don't have the good technique, you're, you really got to rush your intubation, which is, which is uh, never ideal. Two tips right off the hop, I think, is if you're at that point where you need effective BVM for appropriate oxygenation and more likely for ventilation, then you need to delegate that person for that task specifically. The times where I see it ineffectively done is the individual who's trying to lead a resuscitation, trying to organize a bunch of other things. I'm a simple guy, so I don't think my brain can do more than one thing at a time. And that's probably unfortunate because I'm also an eMERGE doc. Um, it's rare that I get to do one thing at a time. But it's like doing a procedure and trying to think. This is a procedure as with anything else. And the tactile psychomechanics of how to do that is enough that you need to pay attention to what you're doing. That'd be principle number one. Principle number two is two-handed mass seal is much more effective than a single hand because most often the technique that I see applied inappropriately is one hand pushing the mask down onto the face with subsequent depression of the, the mandible and the jaw and the neck forward to occlude all the soft tissue and the airway. Whereas a more appropriate technique is, if appropriate and C-spine precautions permit, using a two-handed technique to bring the mandible up onto the mask. You're pulling the face onto the mask rather than pushing the mask down. And the idea is that with that and an appropriate jaw thrust chin lift, you're opening the airway so that you have more effective. If you're using two hands, then you need someone else to push the bag. So I guess I have two things to add. One is even before you get an adequate mask seal, I think one of the most important things is an adequate jaw thrust. So if you get an adequate jaw thrust in the patient, your ability to ventilate that patient once you achieve a good mask seal is going to be uh, much higher. And uh, the second thing I would say is make sure you have the appropriate equipment. So if we take this to uh, neonate or a child or an adult, you want to make sure you have the right bag, and then you want to also make sure you have a mask that fits the patient appropriately. I would suggest you have... Um, a variety of mask sizes uh, so that you can adequately uh, adequately fit the, the patient in front of you. So uh, I, I just add one more point to that, and that is if you are doing two-handed, two-person bag valve mask ventilation, there's a number of different hand positions that can be utilized. T typically, people have 
the uh, thumb on the bridge of the nose, the index finger over the mentum <coughs> part of the mask with one handed. Uh, with two hand, you have an option of doing a mirror image with your other hand or, and I think this has uh, been borne out uh, both practically and in the literature to suggest that it's ergonomically easier to put your thenar eminences over top of the mask to create that seal. So you're pressing down with thenar eminences, thumbs pointing down towards the patient's feet, and then you have four fingers available on either side of the mandible to do what Dr. Healy was suggesting, and that is a really good jaw thrust to bring the mandible up towards the excellent seal of your mask. Great. You know I'm having a bad day, and VVM is challenging when I'm doing all that, and I've added the final little pieces I got, which is usually one or two nasal cannula and an oral airway. And I think that's the only other things that can help overcome. Nasal trumpet, Dr. Sherby? Nasal trumpet. So for good BVM, the two-handed technique, use your thenar eminences, and then lift up the jaw. Jaw thrust is key. If you are having trouble, an oral airway and or nasal airways, and just the last thing I wanted to mention was in patients who look like Santa, who have huge beards, you can use KY jelly or a lube on the edge of the mask, or you can try and stuff unfolded 4 by 4s into their cheeks. And then just lastly to add that for patients who have dentures, you actually want to leave them in for BVM, whereas when you're intubating, you want to take them out. Right. Um, before we use the KY jelly, there's also a, an option of using a medium-sized uh, tegaderm or offsite. Put that right over top of the mouth and the beard where the seal of the mask is going to be. Make sure you cut a hole for the mouth. And then putting the mask over top of that so that the mask has a seal with the tegaderm. And I say before the lube because it would make it hard to get a good sticky seal with the tegaderm. And often that will uh, cr create a great barrier to air leaking out through the facial hair. So BVM, very important because without BVM, you've got to be rushing towards going for an intubation in a patient who's not doing well, and it does buy you time. Uh, so the good technique is, is important. B BVM is important, and too often in a team-based uh, environment, particularly in a teaching-based environment, we delegate it to too novice uh, a practitioner. Um, it's essential. And I think we do that to the detriment and the peril because we want all the glory and all the, the, the glamour that comes with the actual direct laryngoscopy. But I think it's essential. <clears throat> and the pearl about the, the dentures, that's a pearl. That's a, take, one that, take that one home. So the other thing that I'll say is that if you're going to delegate the task to someone, that standing at the foot of the bed, understanding a little bit of the history behind why the patient came in will help you to determine whether that patient is going to be difficult to bag valve mask. And so uh, typically um, we teach about uh, boots as an acronym to describe people that might be difficult to bag valve mask. So that's bearded, which we've already discussed, uh, obese, old. T is trauma or no teeth. So the edentulous population that Dr. Sherbino was referring to. And S is stiff lungs or sleep apnea. So those people are all going to be difficult to bag valve mask. If we know that, we might choose not to delegate that particular patient to a novice learner or someone who hasn't done a lot of it. The other one that was um, just brought up last year, in a, they basically looked at 50,000 anesthetics and came out with uh, radiation therapy to the neck as being another independent predictor of difficult bag valve mass ventilation as well as difficult intubation. So these are people that have undergone a laryngectomy, subsequent radiation therapy to the neck, and that just makes the tissues very stiff and rigid. And these people also have narrow mouth opening, making it, again, uh, difficult on the intubation side of things.
So a quick review of BVM. You should be using BVM if the O2 sat is less than 90% on a rebreather. If the patient is breathing spontaneously and satting over 90%, then all you need to do is hold the mask and let them breathe. Remember that an adequate seal is key and good BLS is key as well, especially the jaw thrust maneuver. If you're having trouble, you can use an oral airway or two nasal trumpets. Remember that a two-handed mask hold by an assistant is better than one person doing it. If you're having trouble with someone who has a big beard, you can use KY jelly, or you can use unfolded 4x4s inside the cheeks, or a tegaderm patch with a hole in it. In terms of the patient's dentures, remember, remove dentures to intubate, leave them in to bag mask ventilate. And when you're bagging, use one hand to bag, not two, and bag slowly. You should be ventilating at about 8 to 12 breaths per minute. In the next section, we're going to talk about making that decision to intubate and the indications for intubation. The general indications to intubate are to obtain and maintain an airway in the face of something like an obstruction, to correct efficient gas exchange, either being hypoxia and or hypercarbia, to protect the airway against aspiration or blood, and to preempt predicted clinical deterioration. So those are really the four big reasons why you would intubate someone. In this case, when would you go from doing the BVM and naloxone and all the things we were talking about, when would we decide, okay, now it's time to intubate? Well, I think you've described a patient with sedative hypnotic, as, as Dr. Sherbino mentioned, probably a narcotic toxidrome. We've uh, then given a subsequent dose of, of uh, naloxone. Once you believe you've seen either no effect or you've reached what you think is a, a reasonable dose of naloxone, which I think depends, again, on the patient and what you think they've ingested, a little bit on the history, uh, and a little bit on your patient's um, for the, the patient's response to that uh, medicine. You, you then want to make an assessment of whether the patient has improved or not. If the patient has not improved and you thought that their level of consciousness was so, so depressed at the beginning that they might require intubation, then you'd proceed to intubation. I think one of the most helpful predictors of that in a, a poisoned patient uh, or in a patient who's taken an overdose is pooling of secretions. So if you have pooling of secretions in your airway, that to me indicates that you're no longer protecting your airway from aspiration. And I'm going to add something to your airway protection that should at least decrease the likelihood of further uh, secondary injury. So that's one of the things we want to try and prevent. We don't want to see somebody have secondary injury because we delayed intubation. So I think pooling of secretions for me is one of the most helpful uh, predictors. Obviously, uh, if they are completely unresponsive, whether they're pooling secretions or not, uh, doesn't really matter to me. I don't think that, that there are other assessments that really help. I also don't think that a dogmatic approach where you use rules like GCS less than 8 or you know, gag reflex or those things would uh, really help the experienced clinician in making that decision. Let's talk a little bit more about those myths of when to intubate. The GCS of 8, I understand that that came from ATLS, from the trauma literature. Do you find the GCS of 8... A useful guideline? Should we be carte blanche intubating everyone with a GCS of less than eight, or should we 
taking that with a grain of salt? Does it depend on the patient? The hard cutoff of a GCS of 8 is as useful as you find ATLS to be. <laughs> if you think ATLS is a useful thing, then that rule is probably useful to you. That's a nice way of saying that I think anything that's dogmatic in medicine is inappropriate. And let's recall that the only literature, the Glasgow Coma Scale, is validated for trauma. And we're now talking about an intoxicated or a poisoned patient. And so we've tried to generalize a principle to a clinical domain where it's never been validated. So no, it doesn't apply. But is it helpful in the bigger picture? Is it helpful of saying this person's obtunded and I can say it's a little bit different than mild, medium, severely obtunded? Does it give me a language to talk to the rest of my team? Sure. But do I say I have a hard number of eight, I'm forced to do something, or I have a hard number of nine, I can't do something? I think that's an inappropriate way to take it. In trauma, let's say in anything, it's all of the clinical elements coming together. In our patient that we're talking about right now, there's a bunch of things we have concern of. Are they protecting their airway from the risk of passive aspiration? And if they're showing signs of an altered level of consciousness, predictably they may not be. If they're actually now demonstrating that they're not protecting because they're not able to clear their own secretion, sure. Are they on their um, hemoglobin desaturation curve right at the shoulder where they're about to fall and have a precipitous drop and become hypoxic, and now they're going to have hypoxic uh, sequela to vital organs, most notably the CNS? Yeah. Are they hypoventilating and hypercarbia increasing? Yeah. Do we need to anticipate a worsening course is there other toxins on board that may lead to hemodynamic instability and we need to make this sick patient and take one of the elements off the table, their airway? Yes. And finally, are, are we going to look at any kind of decontamination in this patient that might necessitate therapies that where we want to ensure an airway protection? Absolutely. This patient has numerous reasons. Is one a hard, fast rule that says you have to intubate? No. That's the role of the clinical and skilled uh, physician. Would I intubate this patient with this kind of presentation after my initial attempts at administering universal antidote failed? Yes, I would. In terms of just completing the myths of when to intubate, the gag reflex. You haven't been practicing long in a high-volume emergency department if you're using that as your marker. You need to only see one of your regulars who come in in an altered state on a regular Friday evening every Friday evening and have someone go and stick a piece of wood in their mouth only to see the kind of response to the ubiquity of the gag reflex. Either you're going to have no response and immediately try to do stuff to which you'll be told many profanities or you're going to have someone try to throw up on your shoes. You'll learn the first time that the gag reflex has limited utility. Can it be part of the history? Sure. But again, black and white, yes, no, absolutely not. I actually don't think it plays into uh, my decision to intubate in any way. I think the, the first thing I'd say is that uh, some people have it, some people don't. As you get older, less people do. As you get younger, almost everybody does. And whether they have it or not, even at baseline, doesn't predict their ability to protect their airway. So gag reflex, if you look at people who undergo swallowing reflexes, doesn't predict the even passive aspiration from that. So I think, you know, do they have a good cough is a, is a way better marker of, of whether or not they can manage their secretions in their airway. And that's essentially what we're talking about. So I think a gag reflex for me doesn't play in any way into my decision to intubate. Just a quick review here. Beyond the four traditional indications to intubate, 
Other things that need to be taken into consideration are pooling of secretions and whether or not the patient has a good cough reflex as opposed to a gag reflex. An additional indication to intubate, which we didn't really talk about, is the patient with severe sepsis and refractory shock, even if they seem to be ventilating well. The reason is that in ventilating for the patient, you're helping to take energy needed for respirations and divert it to the vital organs, the heart, brain, and kidneys. In the next section, the utility of the SELIC maneuver will be discussed and how best to prevent passive aspiration, which can increase mortality. Passive aspiration has come up a couple times so far. In a patient who you believe is not protecting their airway adequately, even this patient who's having some periods of, of apnea, and let's say you've got the mask on, uh, the BVM on, would you perform uh, the SELIC maneuver, applying cricoid <coughs> pressure in, in a patient who doesn't seem to be protecting their airway while you're doing BVM? I'm not sure that I would do that or do do that during bag valve mass ventilation. And the literature is uh, certainly becoming more controversial when you look at intubation itself with Celex Maneuver. And so just so we're clear about what we're talking about, Celex Maneuver is strictly pushing the cricoid bone posteriorly to try and occlude the esophagus, as opposed to burp and some of the other methods that we use to get a better look at the larynx when we're doing intubation. As far as Celex Maneuver goes and its ability to occlude the esophagus and show some outcome measure that is to prevent aspiration, I'm not sure that that maneuver actually helps us out. And in fact, some people suggest that it doesn't help us out. It, it, it hinders our ability to put the tube through the cords. Having said that, aspiration remains, at least in the operating room setting, the third leading cause of death in the OR. So it is something that we have to respect, uh, does happen and carries a lot of morbidity and perhaps mortality with it. Um, and in this gentleman who has a depressed level of consciousness, it's a consideration. Passive aspiration is important and we overemphasize Selic maneuver to the detriment of all the other things that are probably more significant. We have the anxious bag valve mask ventilator ventilating at a rate that exceeds the tachycardia of the patient. Ventilating with, uh, if we could ever measure, um, a positive pressure that far exceeds the, the requirements in order to effectively ventilate the lung, but certainly exceeds the ability of the lower esophageal sphincter to prevent uh, pressure and will promote gastric dilatation and subsequent aspiration. So we need to be careful of that. And two, too frequently we fail to identify the patient early on in their course who is no longer protecting with the hope that uh, maybe they'll get better or I have another patient to see and I'll come back and see what response to that glucose bolus happens 15-20 minutes later. So I think we should emphasize the risk of aspiration just as Dr. Mincer identified it. As to the Selic Maneuver, I don't use it. My experience with Selic Maneuvers is again the most novice person who is usually the most anxious in the, the room usually has a giant Vulcan death grip on someone's throat, which is either impairing venous return from the head, is basically occluding most of the landmarks of the, the laryngopharynx, so I have no clue where to go. And even if I can get through the airway, 
usually they're pressing so hard that they compress the latex of the endotracheal tube and it won't go anywhere. So I don't find it helpful. I often find it counterproductive. Yeah, I, I have to say I agree. I don't use Selic Maneuver almost ever. There's some disease-oriented evidence that suggests you increase your peak inspiratory pressure, decrease your tidal volumes, you have lower expired tidal, tidal volume, probably increase air trapping. It's a whole pile of disease-oriented evidence. The, I think the bottom line is there's no evidence that it, A, improves your success, or B, prevents passive aspiration, although that's been the dogma for years. And I think, you know, there's other disease-oriented evidence that supports the rationale not to do it. Some people would say you can make it part of your armamentarium initially, but understand that you should have a low threshold to throw it out. I don't know that it adds much benefit. If somebody shows it does, I think you can add it initially. Otherwise, I think it just complicates the, the anatomy of your airway and your approach to intubation. So that's cricoid pressure or selic maneuver, and that's in contradistinction to the burp maneuver. So, uh, Dr. Menser, could you just go over for us what the BERT maneuver is and when we should be using it? Sure. So, I think that BERT maneuver is really helpful for uh, laryngoscopy. So, uh, BERT stands for, and I believe this was actually uh, described by a Canadian anesthesiologist. I thought uh, it was uh, Dr. Healy at lunch. <laughs> That's funny. <laughs> really funny. So, um, it's a backwards, uh, upwards, right position of the larynx. And what that means is the patient's right, because when you do laryngoscopy, of course, you're sweeping the tongue towards the patient's left, looking down the right side of the mouth. So you want to put the larynx over to the right side. That can be done by the intubator, him or herself. So by manual laryngoscopy means left hand's on the laryngoscope, right hand is on the larynx, moving it backwards up into the right position. Or you can have someone else do it. The advantage of you doing it yourself is you're trying to optimize your view. So as the intubator, it's often helpful to do that along with other airway adjuncts that I'm sure we'll get to in a moment. Okay, so the outcome of this patient was the, the patient was given O2 passively by BVM and an oral airway was, was inserted. The patient was given more naloxone. The patient woke up and was then observed for a while and ended up being admitted to internal medicine for further observation. I think if you were to take a take-home point from this uh, case, you understand that oftentimes patients will present appearing to require intubation, that some uh, sort of systematic approach to that type of patient will allow you to avoid endotracheal intubation in some circumstances. And in other circumstances, depending on what else is happening in your department, what's happening to that particular patient in their clinical course, you'll be able to anticipate the need for endotracheal intubation and plan a reasonable approach to pre-oxygenation uh, and preparation for those techniques if necessary. I think this case tells us that ATLS is good. Well, that's excellent. That's a great, that's a great, that's a great learning message. Yeah. Yeah. Can we edit that one out for God's sake? Okay. So let's move on to our second case. This is a 23-year-old man who comes to your emergency department by ambulance at 2 a.m. after being struck in the side of the head with a baseball bat. On arrival, he is actively seizing. The paramedics had given the patient diazepam 2 milligrams IV without effect. His pre-seizure GCS was 9. In the ED, the patient is on a backboard with a cervical collar in place. His vital signs are a heart rate of 120, 
blood pressure of 175 over 95, an oxygen saturation of 94% on a non-rebreather. It's been clearly demonstrated that even transient hypoxia or hypotension in a severely head-injured patient may as much as double mortality. So it's our job to ensure that patients maintain cerebral perfusion pressure and oxygenation of their brain after a head injury. In light of this, how would you manage this patient's airway? Dr. Healy? So you've identified a patient who uh, has had uh, trauma. We think is a decreased level of consciousness as a result of that trauma. We believe that the cause of that is intracranial, at least based on the fact that he's had a seizure. You've got a patient who's tachycardic, hypertensive, already borderline hypoxic on a non-rebreather with an oxygen sat of 94. I think it's really important to differentiate this case from our previous case. This is a really high-risk patient. You've identified two features that we know we must, we must avoid, hypoxia and hypercarbia. We avoid those to prevent mortality in our patients. So as opposed to the last patient where we could take time, try naloxone, reassess the patient, see how things are going, in this patient, we're going to rapidly gain control of this patient's airway. And I think my first step in this patient after a very brief primary survey will be to focus on uh, airway management, to do it rapidly, efficiently, and that begins with an assessment of the ability to intubate, the ability to ventilate, and in the event those things fail, the ability to perform a crike. So those assessments of difficulty so that you can be prepared to perform rapid sequence intubation, which is, I think, what most of us would do in this circumstance. So let's review here what makes an airway difficult. An airway can be difficult if you have difficult BVM, which we've already talked about the mnemonic boots. It can be difficult if there's difficult laryngoscopy, which we're going to talk about in a moment. It can be difficult if there's a difficult extraglottic device, or it can be difficult if it's a difficult crike. So right now I'd like to review what makes a difficult laryngoscopy. An easy way to remember that is by the mnemonic LEMON. The L is for look externally, and this is right out of the Difficult Airway Course Handbook. It says, although a gestalt of difficult intubation is not particularly sensitive, it is quite specific. And so this is just the feeling that the airway will be difficult. Some of the things that come into consideration with this feeling that the airway might be difficult when you look externally are a small mandible, large tongue, large teeth, and short neck. The E stands for evaluate the 332 rule. This step is an amalgamation of a much studied geometric consideration that relates the mouth opening and the size of the mandible to the position of the larynx in the neck in terms of the likelihood of successful visualization of the glottis by direct laryngoscopy. The first three of the 332 rule, therefore, assesses the mouth opening. A normal patient can open his or her mouth sufficiently to accommodate three of his or her own fingers between the upper and lower incisors. The second three evaluates the length of the mandibular space by ensuring the patient's ability to accommodate three of his or her own fingers between the tip of the mentum and the chin-neck junction, which is the hyoid bone. The two assesses the position of the glottis in relation to the base of the tongue. The space between the chin-neck junction, the hyoid bone, and the thyroid notch should accommodate two of the patient's fingers. So next in the mnemonic lemon is the melompathy score. This needs to be assessed with the patient sitting up with their head in sniffing position. And a class one is good and class four is bad. 
In class one, the oropharynx, tonsillar pillars, and entire uvula are visible. In class two, the pillars are not visible. In class three, only a minimal portion of the oropharyngeal wall is visible. And in class four, the tongue is pressed against the hard palate. You can't see anything. The O for lemon stands for obstruction or obesity. And the N in lemon stands for neck mobility. For example, someone with rheumatoid arthritis has poor neck mobility. So the lemon mnemonic will help you determine if this patient is going to be a difficult intubation. So most of us have been taught how to predict a difficult airway, but I think it's also important to go over the predictors of a successful intubation. The predictors of a successful intubation are an experienced practitioner, so the more you practice, the better. Secondly, that there's no significant muscle tone. Thirdly, a predictor of successful intubation is optimal patient position, and we'll talk about that in a moment. Next is optimal blade length then optimal blade type, and lastly, the use of laryngeal manipulation, which we've talked about, burp, for example. So this patient was given uh, more IV benzodiazepines right away while the airway was, was being assessed. Let's talk a little bit about RSI uh, in particular, the steps of RSI and all the controversies around each of the steps. So RSI can be divided into seven basic steps. Sometimes we call it the seven P's. The first P is for prepare. The second P is for pre-oxygenate. Then it's pre-treat. Then paralysis and induction. Then it's positioning, placement, and post-intubation management. In terms of preparation, some of the most common reasons for intubation failure in direct laryngoscopy are inadequate preparation and also poor patient positioning. But let's talk about preparation. Can you tell us some sort of key pearls about preparation and what, what you would suggest for preparation in this patient? When I think of prepare, I think of two things. Do I have all the gear? Does it all work? And I can tell horror stories. We all probably can tell horror stories of when we anticipated something to work and the light burnt out, the bag valve mask broke, um, and you have these paralyzed patients that you can't oxygenate, can't ventilate because of your gear. The other part is anticipating two or three steps down of a worsening course. And that's our role as emergency physicians, to anticipate the worst that can happen and be ready for it. And we already know this is going to be a difficult airway. We presumably are going to intubate this patient using C-spine immobilization. So by definition, this is going to be more challenging. And you need to understand what is my next step, not what are all the available steps and can I rhyme off all these things I've read in textbooks, but what am I going to do for this patient when my primary approach is unsuccessful? What is my next step immediately going to be and do I have that gear to facilitate that? I think that's the essential elements of any intubation. I think I would um, look at the patient and determine if I'm going to have a difficult time intubating this patient. So we've been given the, um, the age of the patient, but not really a description. Is this patient obese? Are there other risk factors? Short neck. Is there anything obvious that's going to make it difficult for me to uh, obtain a secure, intact, patent airway? And that's going to affect how I prepare for this. So I want to make sure that I have my primary method of obtaining an airway available, ready to go, and then a second method available, ready to go if I get into trouble. So, for instance, many people will choose laryngoscopy as their initial method, which is great, very good at looking at posterior airways, uh, but when you have difficulty with laryngoscopy, 
Sometimes the difficulty is because the airway itself is anterior. So always good to have prepared an opposite device to posterior uh, airways. So that would be a trach light, for instance, uh, some people use, although that particular item is no longer being manufactured. So you could use an intubating LMA as another anterior device. For those of you who like mnemonics again, there is a mnemonic for preparing for RSI, and that is SOAP ME. S is for suction, O is for oxygen, A is for airways, so getting your BVM tubes and blades ready. P is for pharmacology, so having your drugs ready and anticipated drugs ready. M is for monitoring, and E is for escape plan. We've done all our preparation for this patient. Uh, the next step would be pre-oxygenation. So how best should we be pre-oxygenating patients when we're about to do a rapid sequence intubation? So I think in this patient, we don't know much about the uh, respiratory rate, but assuming that benzodiazepines achieve seizure control, for some reason he's desaturating, I think at this point you want to provide the maximum concentration of oxygen by passive means as you can. And so I think uh, using a bag uh, valve mass device for this patient is very appropriate. Provide a good seal, allow passive ventilation to occur, attempt to get those oxygen saturations as high as you possibly can, and then uh, while you're preparing your other steps, I think in this particular patient, that's going to be your most reasonable method of, of pre-oxygenation. So, gonna, uh, and I would just add in there that if you chose not to use a bag valve mask, that might also be appropriate. Absolutely. Uh, because you're probably going to take two or three minutes out mm -hmm. to um, gather all of the paraphernalia that you might need for your backup uh, intervention. So your first statement to the staff is to put on perhaps a non-rebreather mask and Absolutely. have the patient oxygenating with whatever their rate is at that time. And obviously we require some ongoing um, assessment in terms of how they're uh, ventilating at the time on their own. But given that they would likely hopefully have good ventilation, adequate ventilation, I would say two, three minutes of a non-rebreather might obviously uh, help them out enough that you have the opportunity to achieve the end. So a functional residual capacity that is at maximum O2 concentration, you've removed all the other gases and it gives you the amount of time you need to adequately intubate that patient without having the patient suffer hypoxia during the event. The one danger you could have in pre-oxygenating this patient is assuming they're combative from their postictal state or because of their primary injury is having somebody now to that combative patient attempt against all of the will of this altered patient to try to forcibly bag valve mask ventilate that patient. And I think that could worsen things. So I, I like simple things first, a non-rebreather, and if that's not successful, needing to increase the delivery of FI2, maybe a little bit of assistance with their ventilation, if they're hypoventilating, then I'd move to the BVM. That brings up the point, in the patient who is difficult to pre-oxygenate and they're delirious or they've just had a seizure and you're having trouble pre-oxygenating them, there's this new concept called that they've called delayed sequence intubation as opposed to rapid sequence intubation, uh, which uses ketamine that can help pre-oxygenate people in these sorts of situations. Can you explain what this delayed sequence intubation is all about and what you think of it? So this is an article published recently describing this technique. So delayed sequence intubation seems to be the administration of a sedative providing uh, either passive pre-oxygenation with a non-rebreather 
assistance with a bag mask device or at the most extreme non-invasive ventilation uh, by way of a ventilator and a mask on a patient uh, after the administration of a sedative such as ketamine for example. The argument for uh, that technique is to prevent desaturation uh, in preparation for rapid sequence intubation. Uh, there are, in, uh, I guess in my opinion, a variety of reasons not to do that But in, in this particular patient. But um, certainly the idea is to add both oxygen, positive pressure, and behavior control early in the, in the management of the patient. Uh, and then once you I believe you've achieved that functional residual capacity free of other gases other than oxygen, you move on then to uh, rapid sequence intubation by the administration of a paralytic. I haven't tried this delayed sequence intubation yet. Um, having read some of the papers around it, it's attractive to me. It is not for use in the patient we've just described. Its use is in the patient with a primary pulmonary or septic condition in which you are trying to increase pre-oxygenation state where the use of a non-rebreather or the BVM is unsuccessful and you require the addition of PEEP. In those cases, using a bit of sedation so that the agitated hypoxic patient um, can tolerate um, a full face mask or a partial mask for BiPAP may help you to have a pre-oxygenated patient so that when you actually paralyze them and take away their own uh, ventilatory response that you won't have immediate and precipitous desaturation and a pot potential um, hypoxic cardiac arrest. And that patient is helpful, but it comes with the caveat that you can appropriately sedate the patient with pharmaceutical agents such as ketamine in your department. It comes with the caveat that you have um, non-invasive positive pressure ventilation readily available for administration by an emergency physician rather than waiting for all the people to arrive. Because if you wait for that, that will long have exceeded your, the urgency with which delayed sequence intubation should occur. And by delayed, we're talking delaying it by minutes and not by half hour increments. And it assumes that you have a primary pulmonary or in kind of the unusual case of septic patient where you have a, an intra-pulmonary shunt. As an, as an etiology where it might be beneficial. In our primarily head-injured patient, this is not the time. My problem with the delayed sequence intubation is they describe it using doses of ketamine that are the sorts of doses we use when we're doing procedural sedation, and then they paralyze the patient. So my problem with it is that you've got a patient who's not fully induced, who you're now paralyzing, so you're paralyzing a potentially sort of almost awake patient. The rationale for delayed sequence intubation is that it allows for adequate pre-oxygenation without risking gastric insufflation or aspiration. DSI consists of the administration of a sedative agent which does not blunt spontaneous ventilations or airway reflexes like ketamine, followed by a period of pre-oxygenation before the administration of a paralytic agent. Some experts argue that an advantage of DSI is that sometimes when you give the sedative agent and the patient is placed on non-invasive ventilation, the respiratory parameters improve so much and so dramatically that intubation can be avoided altogether. But I think we need a little bit more evidence around delayed sequence intubation before we start practicing it.
before we get into the induction, let's talk about the next P, which is pretreatment. So traditionally, we've been taught that for head-injured patients, that lidocaine and fentanyl can be considered as a pretreatment before induction and, and paralysis in your, in your RSI of patients with potential raised ICP. For cardiovascular disease, it's been suggested to use fentanyl as pretreatment. And for reactive airways disease, it's been suggested that possibly lidocaine would be beneficial for pretreatment. And then in pediatric patients under the age of 10, atropine would be pretreatment medication. Pretreatment in patients with raised ICP, you know, when, when a patient is intubated, there is a reflex sympathetic response to laryngoscopy, which increases the heart rate and the blood pressure. And we want to try and avoid this reflex in patients with raised ICP. In an effort to blunt this reflex, some experts suggest using lidocaine and fentanyl will help to attenuate that raised ICP as well. So first, let's talk about, about lidocaine in, in raised ICP. Do you use lidocaine for, for these kinds of patients? I think that even if we take a step slightly backwards and ask ourselves what our goals are for this particular patient, you want to achieve rapid control without hypoxia or hypercarbia, without hypotension. We know that those things alter outcome. What we know about lidocaine is that in patients with an ICP bolt or an ICP drain, if I provide lidocaine exactly three minutes prior to a laryngoscopy, the number doesn't go as high on the ICP monitor. I know that mortality is doubled if you get hypoxia or hypotension. At some point in time, taking, and in head injury, some people suggest five drugs, so the defasciculating dose of of uh, non-depolarizing uh, muscle relaxants, you're talking about fentanyl to blunt the sympathetic response and lidocaine for ICP, plus you're talking about an induction agent of choice and a paralytic. You've now got five drugs to think about. In addition to that, you have to prevent hypoxia and hypotension, which we know matter, and you've got to rapidly secure the airway. Something has to give. So overall, the cognitive loading of that situation is just going to be so high that at some point in time, an error is going to be made. So I have to say that my preference in a head-injured patient uh, and the way I teach this is that the most important things to avoid are hypoxia and hypercarbia. Get a, a single uh, induction agent, a single paralytic that you're comfortable with, provide rapid control of that airway. I think that uh, if you do that, you provide excellent care to your patients. In the end, you, you don't perhaps provide those things that some experts believe are important, but we know that those things are important based on disease-oriented evidence as opposed to patient-oriented evidence. So that was a fair and balanced response, and I'm going to disagree with that. And so maybe I'm being controversial. I agree that in terms of actual outcomes we care about, do people get worse? Do people eat from a tube? Do people die? Um, it's hypoxia, it's hypercarbia, and it's hypotension. Fine. But I'm tired of apologizing, and I think many emergency physicians are tired of apologizing for having a sophisticated practice. That's saying there's only one drug, you should only use one thing, and that's the only way to do it. And does that take us back to the bad old days where we just use midazolam for everything? No. If I were to draw an analogy to chain of survival in cardiac arrest, the only data we have for outcome is time to early bystander CPR, um, time to electricity. And yet, we all get excited about how much atropine, how much epinephrine, and we don't see any primary outcomes that any of us concern about. 
But we all do it because we think in this chain of survival, the additive effects of all these things may have some bearing. I agree. ICP bolts I'm not routinely putting in, in my emergency department patients. But in the right context, if I feel comfortable with the drug, I have the time, my team is familiar with how we're going to administer it, and I have a system that prevents system error, I do use these medications. My caveats, of course, is that I use them at the right doses and with the right delay between administration and um, induction and paralysis. Because most people give homeopathic doses of fentanyl and or they give the fentanyl and the lidocaine right before they induce and paralyze the patient so that the medication is not at an appropriate level to affect any kind of chain, change and it hasn't had a time to circulate and have its pharmacologic effect. So what, what kind of dosages do you use? Can you just take so a for fentanyl? So for fentanyl, I'm using probably about 2 to 3 mics per kilo, so at least an amp. So about 150 mics on a standard adult. Um, and for lidocaine, usually I use an amp, so 1.5 milligrams per kilo. So usually 100 milligrams for a standard patient. So I guess my turn to comment. I work in a small community setting. I'm not as sophisticated as these academics. Um, I, hey, leave me out of this, okay? <laughs> so I, I think that it's uh, important uh, to understand that what we're trying to do is to avoid complication. So lidocaine may or may not complicate things. It may or may not be a benefit in terms of outcomes that matter to patients. So it may change disease-oriented outcomes, but may not change patient-oriented outcomes. And I think that's the point that Dr. Hugh was trying to get to. Uh, the other part of it, uh, and now let's be specific about fentanyl, is that fentanyl might actually change your patient-oriented outcomes because it actually works as a vasodilator. So, as Dr. Shibino mentioned, some people might choose to give it too close to the induction. Some people might choose to give it. Uh, and in giving it, you might get the amount of vasodilatation which, in the volume-contracted individual who comes in, and we usually assume most emerge patients are a little dry, when you vasodilate those people, you get a drop in pressure. So we need to talk about this whole process. So I'm gonna suggest that we volume load these people. And in the anesthetic literature, they do suggest 12 mils per kilo of crystalloid to volume load them to avoid any changes in hypotension related to propofol. Just to put that in perspective that those studies were looking at propofol, but propofol works by vasodilating. So does fentanyl work by vasodilating. So I'm making an analogy there that if you preload the patient in an appropriate fashion, it gives you a little bit more breathing space to avoid the hypotension that we're trying to avoid. And that really is what's important here, right? So part of it is, and, and perhaps this is a little bit more you know, complex approach, but if you have time- More sophisticated maybe? <laughs> So if you have time, you might choose to volume load the patient and 12 mils per kilo in the average 70 kilogram person is going to work out to be about a liter of crystalloid. So you, you give them a liter while you're doing your pre-oxygenation and then, okay, you're set. Now you can go forward and decide whether you want to use one agent that has vasodilatory effects or two agents or no agents that have vasodilatory effects based on that patient's current condition at the time you're going to do induction. So this falls into the prepare category, and you're yes, you're pre-oxygenating the patient, but you're also prepping them for what's about to come, which is a insult, if you will, to their vascular system. And that might include just your induction agent, or it might include a preload medication such as fentanyl. So I'm a little bit more conservative. I work in a 
small department that we're usually referring patients out to other institutions. And so uh, I want to make sure that I do everything as safely or conservatively as possible at the same time as securing the airway in a head injured patient. So I tend not to use the preload medications. Uh, I, I don't think there's a problem with them as long as you do it appropriately. If I'm going to err on the side of using a different medication, I might use a medication that has uh, as the induction agent uh, some side effects that I, I, I'm not really happy with in a head injured patient, but it makes me more comfortable. I know the dosing of propofol, for instance, a lot better. I'm not saying that I'd use propofol in a head injured patient, but if I didn't have Automidate immediately available to me, and some small rural centers don't have Automidate available to them, then they're stuck with using combinations of medications to act like Automidate, and that's a consideration. If you're going to be going down that pathway, you may choose not to use fentanyl, um, as your preload medication because you're taking up some of that compensatory mechanism that will deal with the patient's potential for hypotension. I agree in principle with everything you said. I would say though that the rapid sequence intubation of a patient with an isolated head injury is a much different approach than the polytrauma patient who has also associated hemorrhagic shock. And in that patient, I would take your comments about the vasodilatory effect of fentanyl as a mechanism of through sympatholysis, so taking away the sympathomimetic tone. But in this isolated head injury patient, in my experience, I'm sure your experience is probably very similar to mine, is that the actual changes in blood pressure um, hemodynamics is, is, hasn't been my clinical experience. And in fact, when we talk about post-intubation care, I'm going to be a strong advocate for the need to appropriately provide analgesia to that patient, and fentanyl is going to be, going to be the drug of choice at that time. I don't ever use defasciculating doses. Are defasciculating doses for this purpose sort of completely out the window? Is there any consideration for these anymore? Uh, so I'm going to be the first to answer, and I'm sure there'll be differences uh, with my colleagues, but I hardly ever use succinylcholine, which means that my primary muscle relaxant is rocuronium, and uh, in that case, I wouldn't therefore use a defasciculating dose. Um, and so there is a little bit more of a trend to more physicians using rocuronium as their primary muscle relaxant. Having said that, if you do use succinylcholine, would I use a defasciculating dose? Probably not. I want to say the same thing that Dr. Menser said, but I'm going to say it this way. My defasciculating dose of rocuronium is to use a full paralytic dose. I think the answer to defasciculation is that none of us does it because we all use rocuronium as our primary paralytic of choice. Yeah. And if I was going to use succinylcholine, I wouldn't defasciculate either. Let's move on to the induction agents. So now that we've considered the pretreatment medications, uh, the next step is to give an induction agent. Uh, the, some of the more commonly used induction agents are Atomidate, Ketamine, Propofol. Uh, in the case of our hypertensive head injured patient who's just seized, what would be your choice for induction agent and why? Obviously it takes an assessment at the time you're about to give the agents. So is the patient currently seizing? So the, the patient actually has stopped seizing now after their benzodiazepines. Okay. And then uh, given our most recent conversation, we're going to be giving rocuronium to a patient who potentially might seize. So I now have a concern about using rocuronium in that patient population because the muscle relaxation is going to last for 
20 minutes to two hours, and I'm not gonna know from looking at them extrinsically whether they're seizing or not, and that concerns me. So I wanna make sure that I have good seizure prophylaxis on board. And that is a consideration that I think we often underestimate. And so I, I, I like to think that using propofol, which is a great drug as an anti-epileptic medication, would be ideal, except for the fact that it also causes hypotension upon induction. And so dosing is very important here. Uh, you wanna give a, a sedative hypnotic dosing that is um, going to provide an adequate amount of amnesia for this procedure. We don't want any awareness. At the same time, we also don't want the other side of things where you give too much of a drug that causes hypotension and you get hypotension in a head injured patient, which doubles their mortality. So in the circumstance where you don't have Atomidate, and I think Atomidate would be a great drug to use for this patient, if you don't have that available to you, you have to consider the drug you're gonna use. So is that ketamine, which I think would be a reasonable drug to use, no problems using ketamine here, despite the previous myth about it uh, causing raised endocrineal pressure, I think ketamine for those reasons is an appropriate drug. Um, I think Atomidate is an appropriate drug, and I think propofol has to be used with caution uh, in this patient population and might even be combined with ketamine, the infamous ketafol, as a uh, someone stated it wasn't me, but poor man's Atomidate. I thought someone was going to say Atomidate would be the drug of choice, and it probably wouldn't be for me. Really, we only need two drugs in terms of induction agents, and I think those capture the broad spectrum of emergency department scenarios, and the two drugs would be propofol or ketamine. Um, and I don't think I needed a third one, and I, I would not choose Atomidate here in this case. There is experimental evidence to suggest that it lowers the seizure threshold, and some of my colleagues are already rolling their eyes, and I understand the issue. But I think you have equally good medications in the patient you are now paralyzed for a minimum of 45 minutes. So my point is, is I would use ketamine um, without concern for raising ICP in this patient. I think some of the NDMA effects are appropriate. The preservation of MAP is appropriate. Um, I would use low dose of propofol in this patient, being concerned for hypotension and understanding the hypnotic amnestic effect of propofol um, in this altered patient would guarantee that they would have no recollection. So I'd be happy with ketamine or, or propofol for, as an induction. I'm not a believer in ketofol. For, for rapid sequence induction. Correct. <laughs> because I think you're mixing yeah. pharmacology. No, I totally agree. Yeah. So I, if I'm going to use propofol, I'm going to use propofol. If I'm going to use ketamine, I'm going to use ketamine, but I'm not going to use them together because I think they are two different drugs with two different pharmacokinetics, um, with two different dosing regimes. And as much as I like to say that I like to use a number of pre-treatment drugs, I don't want to use my induction agent in a mixed fashion. I do think actually Atomidate in head injury is actually beneficial. Um, I, I agree. You can, you can have a few less tools in your toolbox and still accomplish the same goals, but I think Atomidate allows you to do that in a safe fashion that avoids hypotension in the head injured patient. In general terms, uh, I, I don't think there is a wrong agent to choose here. I, I think any agent will work as long as you avoid those complications. My choice in this patient population who seized would be propofol, because I think that provides you with the best anti-seizure uh, effects of any of the drugs that we have. But 
I don't think atomidate or ketamine would be wrong choices here either. So a couple of points to emphasize then uh, is uh, preloading those patients that are going to get absolutely with crystalloid <clears throat> to avoid the hypotensive effects. And then my second uh, question for my esteemed colleagues is after you use propofol, we know it works for about 8 to 12 minutes, but rocuronium is going to be working for 20 minutes to 2 hours depending on the patient. Do you start a propofol infusion to have seizure prevention at that point? Yes. Yes. Okay. Um, the challenge being, of course, is so when I order that in certain departments where I've worked, um, there is challenges with uh, nursing practice to make that happen. Um, I think you want to make sure that you that flippant answers of yes match the the clinical environments in which you work. And so, in the environment in which I work, yes, that can happen. So, uh, so in my environment. Uh, nurses don't enter into it. I, I would love for them to do it, except there's just not the resources there. So I am responsible for drawing out the profile, setting up the pump, programming the pump, and running the infusion. And it then requires one-on-one -on -one nursing, and, for, and I would say one-on-one -on -one physician type care, as in those that patient is frequently visited, if not uh, standing by the bedside. When you said I have to program the pump, that immediately took that drug off the table for me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, a little less sophisticated approach, yeah. I guess. <laughs> There's been a lot of discussion so far about how to avoid hypotension in the head injured patient. In general, we want to avoid hypotension in the post-intubation period. So the question then becomes, how can we prevent and treat this post-intubation hypotension? First of all, begin volume resuscitation. Have normal saline going wide open in everyone except for those with obvious pulmonary edema. Consider using ketamine for your induction agent in patients who are hypotensive, and don't hyperinflate your patient. Hyperinflation also causes an increase in intrathoracic pressure, which will decrease venous return. For patients who do become hypotensive after you intubate them, some experts recommend having phenylephrine readily available to give IV push. It's a pure alpha agonist. Lastly, Try to avoid gastric distension, which increases intrathoracic pressure and, again, decreases venous return by putting in an NG tube early after your intubation. Okay, so let's move on from our induction agent to the paralytic. So I'm very curious to hear your reasoning for why rocuronium is your paralytic of choice, especially in a, a head-injured patient where a, a neurosurgeon may want to... Uh, do a neurologic exam after the patient's intubated and the patient's been now paralyzed for at least 40 minutes. Um, so let me, because I think there's a more um, insightful answer coming in a second. Can I emphasize what, what you just said? Too often in our initial primary survey, we get through the A, B, C, and we forget the D before we move to the rapid sequence intubation. And that's a critical error, I think, in anyone's practice that I'm not saying you need to test the proprioceptive response and the dorsal columns in these obtunded head-injured patients, but a simple <laughs> examination of pupillary response and best motor response and some simple reflexes can be very helpful in providing that information to the neurosurgeon. But I must tell you that I don't want any neurosurgeon waking up my critically ill patient within the 15 minutes after I've intubated them for prevention of hypotension, hypoxia, hypercarbia. 
in fact, right after they're intubated, they're going to the CT scanner and hopefully to the OR as appropriately or to be transferred to a neurosurgical center. So my experience is that rarely within that 40-minute window which I've paralyzed someone with rocuronium, do I want anybody to lighten the sedation and see how he's doing now because he ain't doing better. Rocuronium is used in, in my circumstance uh, because it avoids using succinylcholine, which means that I avoid all the contraindications that I need to consider in that patient who might have one of those contraindications to succinylcholine. And uh, I know those are great exam questions, but uh, using rocuronium in, in my hands is, um, is easier and, uh, and, and it comes with a comfort level, I guess. Uh, so each person has to decide whether they're comfortable using rocuronium. And so we have a room full of people that are potentially comfortable using rocuronium, but that doesn't apply to, to the population. So I would again state that each individual practitioner has to be comfortable with the way they do things. Okay. Can, can I take your argument just even a step forward? Is that you're going to need to identify as an emergency physician, airway management, and specifically rapid sequence intubation should be a core skill. And if you're going to perform appropriate airway management, then I think you need to have facility with paralysis. And if you assume that that five minutes, which is probably the shortest period in, in, in a clinical environment, and you can imagine the clinical scenario where paralysis is even extended with succinylcholine, you're going to imagine that five minutes of apnea, that somehow you just be able to sit through and ride it out without having a rescue plan that involves a different uh, approach, et cetera, and your plan is basically to watch the clock, I think that's inappropriate. So the duration of paralysis from succinylcholine to rocuronium is a, a, a moot point in, to my way of thinking, that if you're using a paralytic, then you, regardless of the duration of action, you need to be prepared to take every step in responsibility, ultimately to the very rare occurrence, if you have experience with airways, very rare occurrence of a surgical airway. What about the onset of rocuronium that's slightly slower than succinylcholine in a patient who you need to intubate now? Does that come into your equation at all? You know, I think that uh, if you're doing rapid sequence doses, so in the OR setting for elective patients, we use 0.6 milligrams per kilogram of rocuronium, whereas when I'm in the emergency department setting, it's one milligram per kilogram. And that extra amount of molecules, so we have to understand how muscle relaxants work. The more molecules you have on board, the faster the onset, the better the intubating conditions. So it's still slower overall than succinylcholine, I will admit to that, and I think that's a consideration. But the amount of difference, I would question as to whether it's clinically significant. And if we can agree on some numbers, Let's say succinylcholine, just for the sake of argument, works in about 45 seconds. And for the sake of argument, rocuronium takes 60 seconds. So you've got 15 seconds of, is that clinically significant time? And I don't think it is. Having said that, uh, you know, maybe that's not the case for everybody, but I'm going to put it out there that clinically there's not a huge difference. The pearl I would <coughs> piggyback on that is if you're going to use rocuronium in the RSI dosing, though one, I sometimes go as high as maybe 1.2 milligrams per kilogram, um, is you need more than one amp. Standard ampule is 50 milligrams, and your nursing colleagues or people unexperienced with how to use it in, an, in a true RSI fashion will bring you one amp of the medication, and that's a critical error. You always need two, and sometimes three, depending on the size of the lean body mass of your patient. How about this drug, uh, Sugamidex? This is a new drug that apparently 
works pretty well as a reversal agent for rocuronium in less than two minutes. It's apparently safe. <laughs> I haven't seen it in my emergency department, in either of my emergency departments. Is it available in Canada? Is this something that should be available in Canada? Should we be using it? Yeah, so, uh, so I think it's going to sell like hotcakes when it first comes out because uh, of what it offers, which is a complete reversal uh, of rocuronium's effects by encapsulating the molecules of rocuronium. Uh, four milligrams per kilogram, it reverses rocuronium's effects within one minute, which is very helpful. Now, it's very helpful from a sales perspective. It's not so helpful from a clinical perspective, meaning that if you have an indication to intubate a patient and then you reverse it because you weren't able to get the tube in, that indication still remains intact, in place, and so you're gonna have to get an airway somehow. So uh, I think initially every hospital would buy their appropriate number of vials uh, uh, to say that they have some, uh, but I actually don't think that clinically it's gonna be that useful. Yeah, I agree completely. I think if you're intubating, in the emergency department, we're not intubating electively so that you can have your toe done. We're intubated so that we're intubating because you have elevated ICP and head injury and we need a protected airway. If you can't do that by way of endotracheal intubation and you can't ventilate, then that means you've committed yourself to a surgical airway. And if you're not comfortable with that, I think that you have no business doing RSI. Remember that in, imagine this patient was also had polytrauma and hemorrhagic shock, is that in those patients that you're going to even need a higher dose than the doses we've talked about, maybe as high as one and a half milligrams per kilogram of rocuronium. So that if this person was hit in the head with a baseball bat and then whacked in the spleen a half a dozen times, and they're manifesting signs of hypotension and hemorrhagic shock, that your dose of Paralyx is going to need to be even higher, regardless of which agent you choose. Just some tips if you are going to use succinylcholine, make sure you use a dose that's at least 1.5 milligrams per kilogram. Do not underdose sucks. With the dose of 1.5 to even up to 2.5 milligrams per kilogram, there's less post paralysis pain, there's improved early intubating conditions with the same hyperkalemia issues as with other dosing. Although our guest experts all use rocuronium as their preferred paralytic of choice, there are still a lot of physicians who are using succinylcholine, and some of the reasons are because there has been studies showing that the rate of unacceptable intubating conditions with sucks is between 1.5 and 3% versus rocuronium is between 7 and 9%. Do realize, however, that there are several contraindications to succinylcholine, the most important being hyperkalemia and for example, patients on dialysis who are at high risk for hyperkalemia. There's also some evidence that succinylcholine may raise intracranial pressure. However, this raise in intracranial pressure from succinylcholine is sufficiently small and variable that you probably don't need to worry about worsening ICP with succinylcholine. And lastly, for those people who do like succinylcholine, the Cochrane database does favor succinylcholine over rocuronium, so I think the bottom line with paralytics are use what you're comfortable with and what your team is comfortable with. And make sure you understand all the contraindications and all the pros and cons of each of the paralytic agents. Okay, so the next P in the P's of RSI is positioning. This patient's in a C-spine collar. 
And so that will predictably make the intubation more difficult because of the limited range of motion of the neck and the mandible. Do you have any tips of how to make it easier to intubate patients who need C-spine immobilization? It would be ideal if you didn't have to do direct laryngoscopy. Some listeners are going to say, well, that's great in, in a perfect world, and so they have to deal with direct laryngoscopy. So maybe we'll talk about that second. But if you are going to use direct laryngoscopy as your first approach, then the major mistake I usually see is keeping the immobilization collar, whatever one you're using, an Aston or a Philadelphia collar in place, and then finding that you can't actually um, sublux the mandible and move it forward and actually to be able to visualize. So the key that has worked for me is you actually take the anterior portion of the collar off, have a second operator provide C-spine stabilization from below, not above at the level of the head because now you have another person to work over, but from below. And their goal is to make sure that there is no flexion or extension of the C-spine, and they have the ability to say, you're moving, stop doing that. And with the collar off, you're now able, with your direct laryngoscopy, to actually elevate the, the floor of the mouth and the mandible so that you can actually see. But keeping that collar Velcroed down will we'll guarantee that you are unsuccessful at obtaining the ideal um, Cormac view with laryngoscopy. With laryngoscopy, if you're going, if that's the way you're going to go. My understanding with a glidoscope that the amount of C-spine mobilization with a glidoscope compared to a traditional laryngoscope is much less. If you were going to do primary laryngoscopy, would would you consider using a glidoscope first before you even you try traditional? I work in two departments. In both different departments, they have a glidoscope available, and so that is my first choice intubating technique in all my patients, regardless. With a glidoscope. Okay, that begs the question, should we be teaching our residents to use glidoscope as a primary means of intubating a patient? I, I have the good fortune of not having a glidoscope, so that in the absence of a glidoscope, there are many other airway adjuncts that you can use in this patient population to adequately achieve that patent airway without doing any harm. In the C-spine, potentially C-spine injured patient, when you do laryngoscopy, you do move C1, 2, 3. So if you suspect that's the levels that you're dealing with in terms of the injury, or you know, then you have to understand there's going to be movement there despite inline mobilization. Having said that, does that actually adversely affect patient outcome? I'm not sure that we can say that, but we're all trying to be as cautious with these patients as possible. So in doing that, the choice of your um, intubating technique is important. And so my primary modality in those patients and others is not a glide scope, but rather a trach light. Understanding that it doesn't really move tissues. It uh, can be done with the collar intact. So we leave the collar on because these collars all have the cricoid area cut out. And using a trach light, we essentially look for a bright light through the cricothyroid membrane. And so that is helpful, and that's the way I would choose to intubate this patient population. Well, I was Dr. Menser's resident at one time. Uh, he's significantly older and more experienced than me. And so, uh, <laughs> but not better looking. <laughs> not better looking, correct. Yeah, that's right. Uh, but uh, he. Uh... <laughs> really out, <laughs> Thanks for that. So, he's actually taught me the technique of uh, light wand or trach light. Those, uh, that device is no longer uh, manufactured, and so, uh, but, still <laughs> but still used by many people, including, uh, including uh, me and Dr. Menser. Uh, I think. Um, 
I think if if you want to take a pearl away from that, you need to have an adjunct, as I think Dr. Menser's already said, for for anterior airways and for posterior airways. And if your anterior airway adjunct with you know is the glide scope, you have the added benefit of less mouth opening. Although I haven't seen the evidence myself, potentially uh, less C-spine movement. I think alternately you can use a different intubating technique like the intubating LMA. I I guess some people would use uh, fiber optic, although in this patient population I probably wouldn't. And so, uh, you know, I think... uh, I think it's important for residents to learn direct laryngoscopy. I think they will find scenarios where this is the only uh, technique that's available to them because that's what's available to you on the floor or when you see a patient or in an ambulance or wherever you happen to be. And so I think as a skilled airway practitioner, at least at the moment, although I do see a foreseeable change to this device away from it being the primary modality of airway management, I think it still exists as the most ubiquitous airway management device. I think you still have to have facility with that device and expertise in its management. Um, But I also think it's really critical that as an airway expert, as an emergency physician, you should have facility with multiple different devices devices that you would use in multiple different scenarios. And I think I think you emphasized at the beginning that it's really important to not only get used to those devices, but then to practice their use. And so we know that some devices are easier to use than others, and certainly laryngoscopy is one of the more challenging modalities of intubation, having the high, one of the higher number needed to learns of about 47 intubations, as opposed to trach-like, for example, which might be 15 to 20, or an LMA as a rescue ventilation device, which might be have a number needed to learn of one to three. So I think, you know, knowing that information, you have to have a variety of techniques for managing this patient's airway. The pearls that I would emphasize in this discussion would be you should know a number of different approaches that you have available in your context that address different airway challenges, um, but don't worry about knowing them all. Because when you pick up airway textbooks or go to courses, there's so many options, you feel a little overwhelmed, and you know a little bit about a lot, rather than knowing a lot about the few core ones that you're gonna use. And it's not just knowing how to use them once, but it's maintaining that practice. So in this case, an RSI was attempted, and the first pass at intubation failed. So knowing that apnea times should be limited in in head-injured patients during intubation attempts to avoid the adverse effects of hypercarbia, what would your next move be? So if the intubator uh, is unable to to problem-solve that, I think uh, a reasonable choice in this patient might be to change intubators. So, and not, that doesn't mean uh, that people only get one chance to intubate, but it does mean that in this scenario, if you can't problem solve to tell me why you couldn't see cords, so your blade's not long enough, you've got the wrong type blade on there, all you saw was posterior retinoids, and you didn't know that bougie could be a potential option there, or you know you, you just had no mandibular movement in a patient with C-spine immobilization who's got a grade four airway. That problem-solving ability needs to be present in this uh, in this airway expert at the head of the bed. I would add, in the general case, inappropriate too early so the patient is not relaxed. Absolutely. Um, <clears throat> or if you're not using paralytic, the patient's not appropriately sedated. There is airway secretions or blood, which are blinding, equipment malfunction. So you have to figure out what's the problem so that you can find a corrective response. Can I just argue that um, perhaps you don't? The reason is is that we've already decided that we're going to use the most skilled intubator in the room to put the tube in, and that person has failed on their first attempt. And if that's the case, then you should call for help, meaning that uh, help might be a more skilled uh, intubator in your area, immediate area, or you're going to ask for anesthesiology to uh, come and assist. Either way, if you've already picked the 
best person and that person has failed in the first attempt, I think it's not unreasonable to call for help. You want to anticipate the difficult airway and have all of the appropriate help summoned before you hit that snag. There may be moments where you realize that your next move will not successfully solve the problem that you've identified. And if you can temporize appropriately, and this would be very unique to the, the actual patient before you, to allow time for that next more skilled operator to arrive that's appropriate. All of us are saying the same thing, and that is don't do the same thing the next time. So there has to be something that you're going to change about the next attempt, whether that is change devices, uh, optimize your positioning, optimize the positioning of the patient. But, you know, there are so many things that we could change based on your assessment of that airway on the first go that you need to have that list in your head and you know what your next step is going to be. So I agree with uh, both uh, Dr. Menser and Dr. Sherbino in, in saying that, that it's important to change something on the next attempt and it's the assessment of that first attempt that uh, determines what that's going to be. In this case, the blade was changed from a curved blade to a straight blade and the patient was intubated. We're going to talk about positioning a little bit more later, but I just wanted to bring to your attention that the sniffing position, which has been classically taught uh, as a position that the patient's head should be in, has actually been found in randomized studies in the OR to be no better than simple head extension uh, to facilitate intubation. Remember that manual inline neck stabilization is the best way to immobilize a patient who needs C-spine immobilization. And that's especially important because there is some evidence that the presence of a C-spine collar actually increases ICP in traumatic brain injured patients. There's been a lot of teaching around the positioning of the patient, but what about the positioning of the intubator? Some tips that will help to facilitate intubating in terms of the position of the intubator are that experienced clinicians stand further back with straighter backs and arms and hold the laryngoscope closer to the base of the blade. Keep your arms abducted to the sides of your body. The bed should be up so that the patient's head is at the, about the level of the clinician's belt line. In terms of curved versus straight blades, there is better tongue control with a curved blade. There is some evidence that after a curved blade has failed that a straight blade will increase success. So let's move on to how to confirm to placement. In this case, the patient was intubated with a straight blade, but the intubator wasn't sure whether the tube went through the cords or not. So what are the best ways to confirm tube placement? So I think there's a number of different ways to confirm placement. There are certain, I would say, reference standards that are really good, and that would be end-tidal CO2 monitoring. There's different ways to do that. So there's catnographs, which provide you with a number and a waveform. Uh, and I think those ones are the most reliable way to do it. There's also the color metric and tidal CO2 monitors that have a little window in a device that looks much like a filter and it turns purple and yellow, purple, yellow, with yellow being yay or yes, you've got the tube in the right spot, meaning there's antidote coming back, and purple being the color of the patient if you don't have the tube in the right spot. Uh, I like that, that's good. <laughs> those, those actually fail about 4 to 7% of the time, so you might in fact have the tube in the right spot. Uh, but in fact, the device itself fails. So uh, if you get a failure rate of 4 to 
I would opt for capnography if you have that available in your department. Finally, there are esophageal detector devices that uh, can also be used. Uh, that's where you squeeze a bulb, you put it over top of your endotracheal tube, and look for it to either stay squeezed or to pop open if it's in the lungs. So I think that it's it, it's reasonable, inexpensive way to uh, confirm tube placement. So the two best ways to confirm tube placement are end-tidal CO2, which Dr. Mansur has just outlined, and the second one is actually seeing the tube go through the cords, which Dr. Sherbino is going to comment on now. The part I'd say here is one of the best and earliest is actually seeing what you're doing. The next step is to make sure not only are you in trachea, but you're in trachea and not in a right main stem. And so that involves auscultating and physically examining the patient. Because in those adrenaline charge moments of the difficult airway, you seem to find that uh, you can confirm that the that the endotracheal tube is in when it kind of bounces off the, the toes. So if you push it in too far, that uh, can be a concern. There are some ways uh, as a pearl to optimize your auscultation. So when you put the endotracheal tube in into an adult, uh, there are some numbers on the endotracheal tube that you can look at depth of the tube relative to the patient's gender. So in 21, 21 centimeters in a female at the teeth, so the top teeth, upper alveolar ridge for those people that are edentulous, We'll put the tip of the tube three centimeters from the crina in 95% of individuals. So put it at 21 and then auscultate after that to see if you're at the right spot. In males, it's 23 centimeters to define the same patient population. One cautionary point when using an end tidal CO2 detector is in the arrest situation. In about one third of arrests where the tube's in the correct position, there will not be enough CO2 detected for the device to register. So in reviewing confirmation of tube placement, the best two ways to confirm are end tidal CO2 and seeing the tube go through the cords. You should also be auscultating, looking for mist in the tube, and remember those numbers, 21 centimeters on the tube for women and 23 centimeters on the tube for men in terms of being in the trachea. Let's move on to our post-intubation management. All of you use rocuronium as your paralytic agent of first choice. You have your patient paralyzed now. I want to emphasize the importance, especially if you're using rocuronium, of adequate sedation and analgesia. Because I can't imagine anything worse than being paralyzed and being awake. What do you generally use in terms of sedation and analgesia post-intubation? So in the immediate post-intubation phase, I think uh, particularly in patients who have been paralyzed with rocuronium who have high risk of seizures, I think uh, that's an indication for seizure prophylaxis. So I would actually administer dilantin in this patient, in addition to the fact that this patient's actually had a seizure. Um, the second thing is uh, I would actually provide sedation with propofol infusions, and then uh, in addition to that, analgesia with fentanyl uh, or morphine. And I think either agent is acceptable. I, I don't think that there is one of us that would disagree that analgesia is really important, and I don't think there's one of us who has at some point in time in our career forgotten analgesia and regretted it in, in terms of increasing sedation requirements. So I think a combination of a sedative plus a uh, narcotic for analgesia, in addition to other adjuncts uh, for analgesia that may be appropriate in the particular patient population, and then in addition to that, uh, seizure prophylaxis with dilantin would be my preference. So um, I completely agree with what Dr. Healy is stating. I just want everybody to understand that one of the main things we were doing to intubate this patient was to prevent <coughs> secondary head injury. The same statement holds true for post-intubation sedation, so mm -hmm. uh, you wouldn't want to hammer them Absolutely. with 
morphine and what I'm saying is you want to try to avoid the hypotension after the fact if you're a little bit too aggressive using let's say propofol and an analgesic uh, and they subsequently drop their pressure that might be a consideration so my uh, my typical routine while the inductive agent is still working is to if I haven't already addressed analgesia is to address analgesia first and foremost and see what it does to their pressure and by adding one agent in at a time and getting vitals in between each agent it allows you to titrate to effect and that in, in my circumstance we tend to refer a lot of these patients out so it allows me to provide some direction to those people that are going to be doing the transport as to how best to keep that patient sedated and analgesed over the two or three hour transport time. I like that and I like fentanyl because of the lack of the histaminic effect that you see with morphine and maybe a bit better hemodynamic uh, profile with all the other caveats that have been said. And I like it by just giving them small little bowls of 50 based on heart rate. And I think turning on two agents and walking away from the bedside or writing it as orders is a critical error because now you have two different agents, two different pharmacokinetics. And just because the hard work of yours is done doesn't mean the physiology is does not need to be considered anymore in your patients. And it's the classic in emergency medicine, once the procedure is done, we leave it to the less experienced people in the room to kind of deal with the consequences of the procedure. In fact, this is probably the most critical time for this patient. So we, we, we do have the ability to walk away from the bedside. In our department, we have a, a fentanyl analgesia protocol, which allows the nurses to give 25 to 50 micrograms IV Q5 minutes PRN, and that allows them to use their judgment based on the post-intubation status, which is helpful. But again, just to emphasize that point, the immediate post-intubation timeframe just to, is, is helpful to watch and get vital signs to understand how the patient responds. And then after that, you might find yourself going to look after some other patients or at least discussing transfer orders with the people that are doing the transport. You have a max dose you go up to uh, when you think they're completely narcotized? So no, I don't, I don't have any patient-related issues that, are, that give me a max dose. Uh, I do tend to uh, use our department's complete supply of fentanyl during shifts, so uh, I don't have a maximum value. <laughs> we can get you help for that problem. <laughs>
There's a past medical history of asthma, diabetes, and hypertension. Their vital signs are a pulse of 112, respiratory rate of 32, blood pressure of 212 over 112, a temperature of 36.5, and an oxygen saturation of 80% on room air. On exam, the patient appears drowsy, diaphoretic, and in moderate respiratory distress, and looks to be about 400 pounds. On auscultation of the chest, he has diffuse inspiratory and expiratory wheezes. An IV is started. Ventolin and Atrovent are given by continuous nebulizer. 125 milligrams of solumedrol started. A portable chest x-ray is ordered. Bloods are sent off, including an ABG. And the respiratory therapist is called down to start BiPAP. 30 minutes after you start the BiPAP, the ABG comes back with a pH of 7.2, a PCO2 of 60, a PAO2 of 50. The patient now appears more sweaty and drowsy. He's sitting up and leaning forward and has obvious accessory muscle use. So for this patient's airway, we've got a few options. There's RSI, there's awake intubation, or there's sedation without paralysis. What would be your approach to this patient's airway? I would attempt to match the patient by being equally diaphoretic and equally sitting forward anxiously. <laughs> I think the first question you have to ask in this case is not how you would intubate, but do you need to intubate? And we may want to get past that relatively quickly, but I think anything you can do to temporize this patient prior to respiratory arrest, that anything you can do to temporize this patient's respiratory status, you should do to prevent uh, intubation. If that is BiPAP, if that's IV magnesium, which hasn't been added to the mix here yet, if that is uh, IM epinephrine or IV epinephrine for that matter, if it's further bronchodilators in, in high dose as best you can, those things should all be in place in this patient. I don't see any reason to rush into that airway with an endotracheal tube at this point. We all know that, uh, that the problems here are related to uh, air trapping, dynamic hyperinflation, and that ventilation, once we have this tube in, this, this doesn't end your trouble. In fact, it probably begins the hardest part of this patient's care. And one of the other things I didn't mention is uh, Heliox. I would do absolutely everything I could to avoid intubating this patient. I would agree with that and emphasize it's not the hypoxia that will worry me. It's when the hypoventilation occurs. Um, and basically when this person who has a lot of girth in order to breathe basically tires and then has a precipitous rise in hypercarbia and probably a PA type of rest. So it's not to get air in that's the problem is getting the air out and adding a piece of latex between their lungs, which are not working well in the atmosphere, doesn't really solve any of my problems. Um, it's me trying to correct the bronchoconstriction, me trying to ameliorate the ventilatory fatigue um, that I want to look at. But be clear that a piece of plastic doesn't primarily address those two issues. Looking at the gases, I'm not too concerned with this patient. Uh, 30 minutes after BiPAP, the PCO2 is 60, the PAO2 is 50. Although that's concerning, we would not expect BiPAP to change the PCO2 much at 30 minutes. So it primarily helps with oxygenation and does not really change CO2 levels at 30 minutes. So although it, it might on, on first glance appear concerning, you really have to look at the patient and see how they're doing. 
if you say that the patient's tiring, our next step is intubation. I think everybody in this room recognizes this is a patient has the high potential for desaturation, is very likely to be an anticipated difficult airway from airway anatomy. So not only do we have somebody who is potentially difficult to intubate, we've got somebody who's potentially difficult to ventilate. And if you're 400 pounds, I'm not sure how deep your pre-tracheal soft tissue is, but you may also have difficulty cricothyrotomizing that airway. And so I think you have to have... I think you have to have an approach to the patient who has the potential to have difficulty in all three of those uh, those fronts. Once again, you want your best intubator at the bedside Absolutely. doing this one, and you probably want two people, and you want to have airway adjuncts available to you. So although you might be writing the orders for epinephrine and all the other adjuncts to treat their underlying reactive airways disease, uh, you also want to be calling for help, getting your airway adjuncts out there. and. In this patient, you know that they're going to desaturate at 180 kilos. They're going to desaturate in under 30 seconds, even optimized. And they're not optimized. Their O2 sats are 80% on room air. Not really sure what they are on O2 or even on BiPAP, but it can't be, you know, over Good. 90, right? Because <laughs> they're sweating and they're sitting up. So uh, I'm going to suggest to you that this patient's going to desaturate in 20 to 30 seconds, and you want to be able to get the tube in in a very, very brief time. Okay, and so assuming that this patient is getting worse and worse and you've decided now that you're going to intubate, what would be your approach? So I would not perform a rapid sequence intubation in this patient because of the anticipated difficult airway and because of the anticipated difficult rescue, the ultimate rescue, which is even surgical airway, I would imagine would be very challenging. My kind of working backwards then, I would say that the awake intubation with airway anesthesia in this patient would be particularly difficult and would be a second choice for me because this patient, as they become more fatigued and their hypoxia worsens, will be much more agitated. And my ex experience with awake intubations for different clinical scenarios requires a relatively cooperative patient in whom you can direct and guide and explain. And I th would think that this would not be a very successful awake intubation. So I would probably provide sedation without paralysis in order to capture this airway. My indication for intubation in asthma is near respiratory arrest. There's no getting out of that. I would call anybody you can imagine would help and make it very clear that you are the, the leader in that room, that you're in charge of the room, but that you want them present for when you need them. So if that's an ENT surgeon for a backup uh, tracheos emergency tracheostomy or cricothyrotomy, fine. If that's an anesthesiologist who has skills in fiber optic airway and you don't, also fine. And once all those things are in place, I'm only going to intubate this person if there's no turning back. So I'm at a point where I don't have a choice. I believe he's going to die without it with the input of my team, provide rapid sequence intubation, immediately intubate the patient if possible, and if not, move rapidly to my planned approach with the, with the various team members I have in the room. In terms of sedation or induction agents for patients in severe asthma, ketamine is a very popular choice because it is a bronchodilator. Our experts will now discuss a little bit about the pros and cons of using ketamine in this case. And so recognizing that ketamine will have a high risk for laryngospasm, I'm okay with that because my very next move is paralysis. Well, I guess I'm just thinking about the patient who's in acute respiratory failure, close to apnea, <laughs> meaning just not be, and then adding in a sedative type dose of ketamine. And is that going to be the straw that breaks the camel's back and 
and, and, and worsen a, a already bad situation. So, I, And I'm just asking that question. I don't think we would do things exactly the same. I think I, my first attempt would be with paralysis. I don't think that it's wrong to do uh, to do your first attempt with ketamine alone. I think that's reasonable. I just think that my planned approach to this airway, and I think any emergency physician who has had formal training will think about this scenario on a regular basis as this is one of the most difficult airways one can imagine being in. Difficult to ventilate, difficult to intubate, difficult to crank. And I think we all have our own sort of approach that we built in our mind with our own rationale because there's very little evidence to guide our approach here. But I agree. I think if you've got an uncooperative patient with impossible physiology who's dying of a, a terrible disease, I think your options are you can try the ketamine subdissociative thing or you can do RSI. My preference would be rapid sequence intubation, best operator at the head of the bed, first attempt. One of the reasons why our experts are so worried about intubating this patient is because they're obese. Obesity poses some major problems to the doc who is managing the obese patient's airway. They have diminished total lung capacity and vital capacity. Airway resistance is also increased in obesity. Obese people without significant obstructive lung disease or other underlying lung disease have a high incidence of resting room air hypoxemia and hypercapnia to begin with. Their functional residual capacity is low, which results in a smaller oxygen reserve and more rapid oxygen desaturation during periods of apnea. They also have an increased oxygen consumption and carbon dioxide production as well as increased work of breathing. Finally, they have larger gastric volume and lower pH of their gastric contents, putting them at higher risk for lung injury and aspiration. So obese patients are harder to bag, they're harder to intubate, they're harder to crike, and they'll crash faster and harder than non-obese patients and can end up with aspiration pneumonitis more easily. So what can we do to minimize the chance of these problems from happening? The first thing to remember is positioning. Start with the patient's head elevated as much as possible rather than lying them in a horizontal supine position. Some people recommend using a reverse Trendelenburg position so that gravity pulls the tissue down giving you a better view. It may also improve ventilation. The other trick is using a ramp of blankets. So putting about seven blankets under the occiput and then five blankets under the shoulders and then three blankets under the scapula so that the face is elevated above the chest wall. And if you look at the side of the patient, the ear or the external auditory canal is at the same height as the sternum when looking at the patient from the side. In terms of other patients who can desat quickly, pregnant patients, patients at extremes of age, and patients with comorbidities like CHF, COPD, or chronic illness. In the following discussion, we're going to talk about how to ventilate the severe asthmatic who has been intubated. So for a patient who's got obstructive lung disease, when you paralyze them, you're suddenly taking away their respiratory drive completely. Do you worry about them getting more acidotic and then coding? Um, all the primary pulmonary problems that lead to a respiratory acidosis state that could be made worse by the inability to effectively match a minute ventilation that the patient had before they were paralyzed. Uh, all those conditions are a function of obstruction. So COPD and asthma, my actual post-intubation ventilation strategy is a low respiratory rate. In metabolic acidosis, in which I'm trying to maintain a respiratory um, alkalosis, 
um, you're right that I'd be, I'm very cautious about matching, matching the pre to post ventilation rate. Probably the realms for another discussion, um, but no, in people dying of asthma and people dying of CPD, it's not, I'm not worried about the paralysis leading to a big bump in hypercarbia and having any kind of pH effect. We all on expect that. Yeah. yeah, and, right. and, yeah. and that, that brings up actually the... I let, I, I let their PCO2 go high just to prevent intubating them. I don't, I, if they're hypoventilating, I'm okay, as long as they're maintaining some degree of oxygenation. I, I do a gas and see a PCO2 of 90, and if I think they're still not tired, and they're not profoundly hypoxic with resultant cardiac ischemia or dysrhythmia, I don't care what that PCO2 number is. Right, so that brings up the point, you know, not to treat the ABG, but to treat the patient. Yeah. And it also brings up the idea of uh, permissive hypercapnia. Absolutely. Permissive hypercapnia relates to, uh, as opposed to ventilating to normal pH, normal CO2, we allow the CO2 to rise in favor of a mechanical ventilation strategy that allows you to have lung protection. So low tidal volume, low plateau pressure, low peak inspiratory pressure to minimize the various forms of barotrauma that exist and ventilator-induced lung injury so that we no longer care about CO2 to a certain extent. And as long as the patient's hemodynamically stable, not experiencing cardiac dysrhythmias, etc., uh, as, and as long as your pH is not getting significantly less than 7.2, I think most people are pretty comfortable in patients with that degree of uh, hypercarbia. So that's the theory of uh, permissive hypercapnia. Here, Dr. Hooley talks about the basics of ventilator settings and further post-intubation care of the asthmatic patient. The major salient points are very low respiratory rate to allow the maximum expiratory time. And the longer you allow this patient to expire, in terms of uh, expiration as opposed to dying from expiring, but uh, the longer you let that patient expire, the uh, less air trapping and dynamic hyperinflation you're going to have. One of the risk factors after intubating this patient, obviously, is you get uh, significant air trapping, you get dynamic hyperinflation, and you get cardiovascular compromise from that. So one of the things, the first things you ought to do in these patients who uh, have either cardiac or, or, in fact, significant respiratory compromise is disconnect them from the ventilator. That alone may be enough, but in addition to that, uh, just applying manual pressure to the chest wall to attempt manual uh, uh, deflation of the lungs is sometimes helpful. So in those patients where you've got hyperinflation, a uh, good bear hug from a good Canadian doctor is sometimes all they need. So really important strategy, low tidal volume. Remember to disconnect the ventilator in the event that you get air trapping or significantly high pressures on your ventilator, uh, and then attempt a strategy where you care less about CO2 and, and more about the patient in front of you. Okay, so this patient was intubated, and you were doing all those things, except that somehow the ventilation rate was set at about 20, and the nurse calls you back to the patient, because you've had to go see another one about 30 minutes later, and telling you that the patient is now desatting, and their blood pressure is 80. First, what do you think the most likely thing is going on? And then secondly, do you have sort of a checklist of things that you go through on a patient who is ventilated, who suddenly desats or has no blood pressure? The first most, most appropriate strategy here is um, you've got a critically ill patient who's decompensating on a ventilator. The most complicated piece of equipment in that room is the ventilator. You take the ventilator to the equation, disconnect the ventilator. That's the first thing I would do. Regardless of how hypoxic or how hypercarbic you think the patient is, disconnect the ventilator. Uh, the second thing you're going to do is you're going to look at uh, tube, so displacement of the tube or obstruction of the tube. So you look to see, and, and you can use the algorithm DOPE, so displacement, obstruction, pneumothorax, or equipment failure. Immediately take the equipment out of the picture. 
you're examining for clinical signs of a pneumothorax, which admittedly in a critically ill asthmatic can be difficult, and you're ensuring that the patient is still intubated and that you can pass easily a suction catheter through the endotracheal tube. The most likely diagnosis here is significant dynamic hyperinflation, and the easiest way to deal with that problem is by placing manual pressure on on the chest wall after disconnecting them from the ventilator. I think one other caveat here is all of the therapies we had in place prior to intubation should still be in place. In addition, these patients are often dry, and so they require significant intravascular volume expansion, and so crystalloids can be helpful. And then one last pearl, which perhaps Dr. Menser can comment on, is that in the really critically ill asthmatic, even before transfer, one of the places you may want to ventilate this patient is in the operating room where you can use inhaled anesthetics as an excellent bronchodilator. So in a dying asthmatic, that can be your saving grace in terms of getting them out of trouble. My understanding from the inhaled anesthetics is that the evidence isn't really very good. Correct. The evidence is not very good. In fact, a lot of the things around the evidence of critically ill asthmatics is really poor. This is a situation where it's like everything that's really, really bad in emergency medicine. We have this kitchen sink of physiological uh, rescues, and we have to be able to use them all. So that about wraps it up for this month's episode of emergencymedicinecases.com. For our quote of the month, this is from the American humorist Arnold H. Glasgow. One of the greatest tests of leadership is the ability to recognize a problem before it becomes an emergency. And before I go, I just wanted to tell you about something that Dr. Sherbino is involved in that looks really interesting. Dr. Sherbino is coordinating an education series for physicians in training and in practice for the Canadian Journal of Emergency Medicine. There's 10 key questions that are addressed by education experts from across North America, including how do I incorporate simulation into my EM residency program, how do key opinion leaders influence my practice, and how do I effectively use electronic CME. If you want to check this out further, go to cgem-online.ca. Until next time, take it easy.